0: Chapter Eleven of Human Toll by Barbara Bainton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Boshy's will was duly produced from an unexpected quarter, for with his usual cunning he had gone by a detour to the lawyer's private residence. Meeting there the wife, he told her much of his perplexities and anxieties for his love's future. Her sympathy begot his confidence, and with her he had deposited his will, which from beginning to end contained but one beneficiary ursula Ewitt, who was sole legatee to seventeen hundred and eighty four pounds hidden where ursula knew he testified despite her protestations many agreed that of a surety the girl must know and searches for boshy's money as thorough and as unavailing as those for the old shepherds raged for weeks in boshy's room ursula's all over the house and for an unreasonable space around recalling his bush ramblings the ex-parson wondered many times and oft aided by his walking-stick all hollow logs and stumps were explored at length this gave place to personal espionage of ursula's every movement less than boshy's savings would gain the legatee the goodwill of any small town besides many argued that was merely the sum stored by boshy who could tell what he had with him when he died sufficient only to bury him was found but he had been notably cunning and sly and had trained this girl whose tragic brown eyes now seemed to hold some mystery was she not deep going about pretending that she didn't know where the money was what an actress she would have made still each vied in outward kindly attention mina stayed almost nightly with her because despite mrs stein's importunity mr civil constituted himself the girl's guardian giving the substance of a conversation with boshy as his warrant none outdid him in considerate attention trust none of them my dear he advised his small eyes agleam with double meaning they are all self-seekers every one he saw this heiress one day assiduously repairing her well-worn clothes that's right my dear save your money don't waste it on things that perish he commended she looked at him She had told him so often that she had none, but she had told all who questioned her the same, yet all agreed she would have made a fine actress, and she understood them. "'Do you mean my father's money? Cameron Cameron told Boshy he had sent to aunt to keep for me. "'No, no, there was no money sent to your aunt, my dear. Boshy's money, don't touch it yet, too many poor prize. By and by, you understand.' One night his stealthy footfall woke her. Even before his gentle tapping, she put on her dressing gown and slippers, and opening her door, candle in hand, went past him. Then she faced him, her raised candle level with his eyes. "'What?' she demanded. He was fully dressed, though the hour was late, and the sleek blackness of his freshly dyed hair and brows drew out his sallow pallor. "'What?' again she challenged. Twice his long hand went to his throat— but though his lips parted, his tongue only clicked with a dumb dryness. To gain time, he made a hand motion for silence, making a pretense of listening for some sounds, but his ears were not helped by his eyes. These, smouldering lasciviously under his raised, dye-clogged eyebrows, were set as though fed by those of the girl, blazing with a tigerish hate into his. "'Good time to, er, uh, er, uh, find his money, my dear,' "'Your money,' he said between breaths. He waited for her to speak, but her set mouth seemed frozen. "'No, rather not, my dear. Well, another night,' he said, hastily translating her speechlessness. "'Say good-night to me,' thrusting out his face. He advanced to her, misled by her passiveness. She aimed a heavy blow at his leering face with the candlestick, but he dodged it, and, terrified of a noisy scene, He rushed to his room. As he lay fully dressed on his bed, he heard her movements for some time. Then came a stillness that he, with all his cunning, misunderstood. On the afternoon of the next day, after many long hours' wanderings, she sat by the river, concealed by some briar bushes. Andrew and Hugh Palmer were expected, and long since she had seen the dust of travelling sheep. Mina, soon after dinner, had walked to the range to meet and welcome the drovers, and Ursula saw her now walking beside Andrew, both leading his horse. Hugh Palmer was not in sight, but after Andrew and Mina and the dog-driven sheep had crossed, he came along at a brisk canter. Catching sight of the bare-headed girl who had mounted a flood-jettisoned log, and was absorbed in watching the two passing, he guided his horse to her. But when she saw him, she shrank again among the briars. "'You, Ursie, what's up?' he asked, quickly dismounting. She rose. Her sun-scorched face was deathly, but she seemed calm. "'Mr. Civil came to my room last night, Mr. Palmer.' The orphaned look in her eyes struck the best in him. "'Curse him, the dog! Never mind, Ursula. You'll be all right now we're here.' "'No hat?' he asked divertingly, looking at her sunburnt face. She shook her head. I came away in the night. He took a partially emptied flask from his pocket and poured some brandy into its tin shield. She took it, strangely obedient, meaning to drink it, but the smell nauseated her, as she knew he was reeking with it. "'Wait,' he said, and I'll water it for you. With manly tenderness he would have placed her on his horse, but she resisted. "'Give me your little hand, then.' So hand in hand, they went in the twilight to Stein's. "'Fuster aunt dender art?' Mrs. Stein observed, to watching Andrew. One afternoon a few days later, Palmer and Ursula were sitting on a stool outside, where they had spent many hours since their coming to Stein's. Palmer, with wine-begot sentiment, found a wavering pleasure in trying to probe the depth of her elusive mind. Its elusiveness fascinated and enthralled him. He knew from the papers that Cameron Cameron had taken, and Boshy so much regretted, that her origin on her father's side threw back to the Spanish invasion. There was little in Cameron's possession that had escaped his son-in-law. He took a side look at the girl beside him. No particular beauty distinguished her face, but the dainty harmony of it and her body appealed irresistibly to him. His dead wife had brought him a home, but no money and though he knew from her father's will that Ursula some day would have money, despite Cameron's intrigues, yet there would be first a tussle, and he loathed all exertion, mental or bodily. Full fed with a satisfied stomach, and no duty but inclination, which was now to sit watching her, this for the time seemed to fulfil all desire, for the ease with which he could ring-bark and sap the crude tastes forgot by the readings of her callow days was an unending marvel and solace to him ancestry he thought gloatingly but instinctively he kept this knowledge jealously quickly he realised that to meet her noonday reason a tale must be possible and logical but he liked best when her twilight mood saw only the poetical then her soul shone through her face like a star joyfully radiant or mystically shrouded this afternoon in accord with it and her he began with ulysses and penelope then next to watch how at his bidding he could radiate joy or grief from her mood flecked face he took sharon and his mystic river and silent freight then the beast in him stirred and he for the first time tested her with voluptuous scenes between anthony and cleopatra vainly did he feelingly paint the perfumed love passages of the passionate pair the puritan strain from her mother asserted itself and this girl beside him saw nothing but lawlessness in the lotus-loving queen's infatuation for another woman's husband, and unfaithfulness in Anthony. Impatiently Palmer got up, and, most unusual for him, walked briskly away. When some time later he returned, she was still sitting there. He noticed the spiritual aloofness of her face, and though he shifted the disinfectant clove in his mouth, he forbore to speak. It was early autumn, "'and like a regretful sigh, the warm mist about them "'was floating to the valley of the shadow below. "'See,' she said, sighing and pointing to the mist, "'the summer's passionate essences float to a mirage ocean "'where Sharon waits. "'River, Ursula,' he corrected, holding out his hand for hers, "'which she absorbed, withheld. "'But this action dispelled her mood, and abruptly she said, "'I want to work for my living.' "'Tell me how?' "'So you want to work, do you?' he asked, to quell his disquiet. "'Oh, Lord, work!' and he grimaced in disgust, for to work even for himself was appalling. Almost earnestly for him, he wished for a few hundred pounds a year with this girl. Then the reformation he had so often promised himself would be possible. But now, how impossible and far off! Who but she cared for Latin or Greek classics, with which he had dazzled her. Hand and body work was what others wanted, and horse sense. As an object lesson to ear and eye, he turned from inward to outward contemplation. Below them from the cultivation paddock came the sound of Mrs. Stein's mustering incantation to the turkeys. Quili la tiri diri duit wam wam Tom Tom echoed the empty tin dish she drummed. Coo 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 responded the gold turkeys flocking to her decoy in the paddock below them peter stein mina's uncle bent and twisted by undue labour staggered stiffly and unwillingly behind a jolting plough peter's one vice accounted for his outdoor task he was trusted with any work but wine making or bottling there was a saying that two men and a boy could not watch nor keep him sober in the wine season Principally to avoid the labour, Mina copied his vice, and several times practised it with such success that her mother, though giving no reason, often barred her going on this duty in the wine-season. But other likes or dislikes were nothing to Mrs. Stein, and Mina, though she would have shirked it, was now sand-scouring the milk-buckets. Gus was away on his afternoon milk delivery, but Mr. Stein was still in sight, driving the cows to their night's grazing when he came back if no moon he would light the swinging lanterns in the milking yard then he and peter would clean up the yard and bales for a morrow that would begin long before dawn for all in this busy household for how much palmer asked himself his eyes going from mrs stein's work-worn face to the bandaged swollen leg showing beneath her tucked-up skirts for what purpose or pleasure is she labouring then aloud Ursula. "'Here comes Mrs. Neale, Ha, ha! Look at her trying to squeeze through the fence. I'll bet she doesn't.' The fat proprietress of the shearer's rest could not pass, and Peter, though he saw, did little without being told, so waited for her shrill summons to come and let out another panel. Mrs. Stein, who expected her, had now, with the aid of the empty dish, deluded her brood to the drying green near Ursie and Hugh Palmer, and stood with them, awaiting the bi-yearly, waddling coming of her customer. It was an open and audible transaction. Volubility of the untoward influence of friendship on business was the foil of the landlady of the shearer's rest. Firmness and brevity was Mrs. Stein's. Mrs. Neal, according to her statement, had been besieged by poultry vendors, yet, from habit and motives of silly sentiment, had come to Mrs. Stein, but she couldn't dream of giving as much for this lot as she did for the last, every one of which died disappointingly poor. Neighbourliness was all very well, but she had a duty to herself. Besides, the bad times didn't, rightly speaking, allow for poultry on the table. Still, she took and was exceeded great pride and credit in and for her table. And as Mrs. Stein had reared these, and for the sake of friendship for an old neighbour and many other circumstances, well now how much would mrs stein take same price was mrs stein's laconic answer through minding her brood she must have missed much of her customer's speech yet when the crux how much came her same price was readily forthcoming throughout the whole interview her watchful eyes found work for her hands and guidance for her tongue go to sleep peter just do you'll get a good supper that way she bawled. And Peter, thirsty soul, who was eagerly awaiting the order to drive the feathered flock to the shearer's rest, grabbed the plough handles and went on, knowing this command would come later, although there seemed no prospect of a deal coming off. For Mrs. Neal apparently had abandoned all negotiations, but appeared fully compensated for her unusual exercise by the beauty of her surroundings, seemingly, from her appreciation, seeing now for the first time bending painfully by reason of her bad leg mrs stein had industriously filled the decoy dish to overflowing with chickweed weeded from the vegetable beds at the same time keeping at bay her clamorous brood and replying when necessary to her sentimental friend's discourse goom on peter chook yourself about and put these turkeys to bed victoriously she turned away cutting short with good day mrs neal's vivid praises given even to the seedy turnips. Peter's horse, like himself, always awaited moving orders. It was safe to leave him stationary while Peter helped his sister-in-law drive the still-expectant turkeys into an unaccustomed pen, a task that brought Ursula to their assistance. The chickens burst unitedly into a hungry clamour, as Mrs Stein, with a full dish in her hands, leaned over the yard to count them. They were all there, she turned away and emptied the dish into another pen. "'Are you going to feed them?' Ursula anxiously asked Peter. He stopped, and, looking at Mrs. Stein, inquired, "'Veed them?' "'No, they are soaked." End of chapter 11